This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 164. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And if you, when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Uh, now, as you've heard in every episode for the last few episodes, and uh, you will continue to in the upcoming episodes until the event, save the date. Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual is happening. It's uh, taking place April 20 through 22nd, 2021. Website is live. Uh, we have initial speakers and sponsors up there as well. You can check that all out at www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. And as you saw on there, uh, one of the panels that I'm very, very excited about is we're doing the crossover event of the year. It's going to be bigger than Spider-Man 3 uh, with the Value After Hours crew. That's Tobias Carlisle, uh, Jake Taylor, and Bill Brewster with special guest Ian Castle. Should be amazing. I'm really looking forward to it and, and announcing all of our speakers and presenting companies and all the sponsors who we're very thankful for at our event. So registration is open. Go to the register button on the website and sign up there to get all the updates as they come live. Again, that's www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. I look forward to seeing you all there. Now this week from the SNN Podcast Network, we have the following shows coming up. Uh, new episodes of In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fury and the Investors Roundtable. First up, Gary and Eric welcome guest Dan Shum to discuss a war story or two, maybe in some of those uh, no-name stocks that you didn't hear about until it was too late. 
So you'll be able to check out that episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. And on the Investors Roundtable, our topic is inspired by last week's Berkshire episode, where I'll be asking our panel what their criteria is for holding a stock 10, 15, 20 plus years. You can also watch this episode on the SNN Network YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash SNNWire. And you can listen to the audio version on this stream right here, the Planet Microcap podcast stream. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Corey Hofstein. He's the co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research and host of the Flirting with Models podcast. This was a long time coming. I've been a fan of Corey forever, his work in Newfound as well as the show. And I really enjoyed finally meeting him and, and being able to have this conversation to learn about his investing journey, strategy, his also his recent move to the Cayman Islands, and, and so much more. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 164 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Corey Hofstein. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. Call me Bobby, Robert. You know, it's, it doesn't matter either way. You know, I don't mind being uh, being confused with the owner of the Patriots. You know, <laughs> at least not the vitriol part, okay? The, the positive stuff. I'm, I'm cool. But uh, my guest today, you've definitely heard this name before. I, I almost positive you've heard one of his episodes of his great podcast, Flirting with Models. He's also the co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research. My guest, Corey Hofstein. Corey, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Bobby, thank you for having me here. I feel like I, I need to hire you as my hype man. Uh, I've never I, been more excited to talk to myself after that intro. <laughs> Dude, when it comes to, I, I will happily be anybody's hype man. I'll be a hype man for hire. That's, I mean, that's what I do on our one of our other shows on the podcast. I, I say I'm the producer, but I more so call myself just the hype. Man I'm gonna, I'm show. gonna start bringing you on my podcast to hype, hype up my guests. I'm gonna bring you on to any other podcast I get interviewed on. Bring, bring it on, man. I listen. <laughs> it, my energy only goes down from here because at that point, you know, I'm like, all right, what did, what's Corey talking about again with quantitative? I, I, you know, just being lost and whatnot. But I, I really do appreciate you, uh, you coming on the show today. You know, we were talking offline about how you know we we're both. Well, you were former LA local like me, and how you made the move to Cayman Islands. That story was incredible. I mean, like we're. Bo- I feel like we were both in a similar position for a second there. So, I mean, t- tell the yeah. audience, what was it like moving there? So I, I'm actually originally from Boston, lived in Boston for most of my life, other than going to college and grad school. Um, my wife had moved out to LA and we were living this bi-coastal lifestyle before we got married. Right after we got married, she said, by the way, we live in LA now. So that was that was a little, so I had to pick up and move and I moved to LA and not that I'm complaining. It's not like she said, you know, let's move to the tundra or something else. We lived in Venice, which was beautiful and just exciting and fun for anyone who's been there. A lot of, a lot of great energy in the area. But during the pandemic, it, everything got locked down. And a lot of the stuff that you pay up to do when you live in L.A., you just couldn't do anymore. And so we were looking at each other and said, you know, uh, we don't have kids. Uh, both of us can work remotely. We don't see business travel starting up again anytime soon. Do we want to do that cliche thing and move out of the move out of the city? So we started looking at all the sort of standard places. Oh, do you go to Austin or Florida? Do you move to Montana? Um 
And we saw these programs that were being offered by a lot of the Caribbean islands. Just that, gonna ask you that. I yeah. So, that yeah. so the first one was Barbados that we saw, and then Bermuda. And then I actually have some friends that uh, live here on Grand Cayman, the team at Resolve Asset Management, who said, Hold on, if you're thinking about this, we're pretty sure Grand Cayman's gonna do the same thing. So we waited, we waited, we waited, and sort of towards the fall, came and announced it. And because I think we were so ready for it, we I, I have to believe we were the first that applied because after I put my application in, they, they gave me a call and said, well, actually turns out uh, we were breaking our own laws. You need to submit all this other paperwork uh, to actually make this work. So we ended up getting what's called a global citizens uh, visa or, or something like that, that basically allows us to be residents of Grand Cayman for a year, right to renew for another year. And so we picked up and packed up our life in LA threw everything in storage and, and moved to Grand Cayman just a... Uh, probably about a month ago at this point. That's so cool, man. Wait, so you were telling me also the story of when you got there, the quarantine is, is so Oh, intense. yeah. So Grand Cayman, I guess, and, and I didn't know this until I gave, came here, was right at the beginning of the pandemic, incredibly strict about their lockdown. The type of thing where to go out and get groceries, it was every other you know day by last name. Otherwise, you weren't allowed outside your house. It's a small enough island they could really police it. But because they were so strict, they closed their borders. They're an island. They weren't letting anyone in or out, no cruise ships. They were able to completely eliminate instances of COVID. And what they've done since has been incredibly protective. You can't just come here. You have to get approval from the government to come here. You take what's called a repatriation flight. Before you get on the flight, you have to take a COVID test. When you land in the airport, you get a COVID test. At the airport, they then put a, a wrist monitor on you and give you a government issued cell phone. And you're then required to go into a 15 day strict quarantine. So you get into quarantine, you stand in the middle of your quarantine location on your phone, you go, boop, I'm here. And it sets up a geofence. And then they track you. And if you leave the geofence, they're going to come get you and throw you in jail. And this actually happened earlier this year to, to a young uh, woman from the US. She broke her quarantine and they came and threw her in jail. They are incredibly strict. At the end of 15 days, they do another little PCR nose swab. And then once that comes back negative, they basically uh, clear you. You're free to go. You drop off all your equipment. And then the island is more or less open. Um, government buildings and, and hospitals, you need to wear a mask. But other than that, the beach is open. You can go to restaurants. It's, it's a little slice of paradise that um, obviously they've worked really hard to protect here. And so that's great. You do feel bad talking about it, though. And like, you don't want to share pictures on social media too much because, you know, you, you feel like you're rubbing it in everyone else's face. But it's um, you feel very safe here after going through that whole quarantine process. Within the geofence, I mean, can you like what's within that? Like at least a basketball court, you can go play a little bit. Well, like, it, you know, it or... depends. Yeah, it depends on what uh, sort of quarantine facility you went into. So I guess early on, the only quarantine facilities were those that were provided by the government. After a while, um, they allowed you to quarantine at home. So if you lived on the island and you were coming back, you, you could stay in your own house. It, you're not really sure where the actual fence is, though. I think it's more like probably a little more probabilistic where it's like you can go outside this radius and then it hits like a red zone or whatever. Um, we stayed way in a super remote part of the island. It was a hotel that that um, really was just two units, a, a top unit and a bottom unit. And because it was so remote, we basically had the beach outside our door. Uh, there was a pool there. There was 
we could play darts outside. You know, it was all sort of like set up in a way that we had a little bit more freedom because we were so remote. But I know that, you know, I have uh, other friends that come here that have stayed on Seven Mile Beach, for example, where they were confined to their hotel room and could not leave their hotel room for 15 mm. days. Got it. Damn, that's crazy. So, I mean, all right, we, I feel like we could do a whole hour just talking about moving to the camp because, uh, I mean, look, every, the, the trends that are going on are incredible in terms of relocation from some of these. Yeah, it's, these it's wild. I mean, you were talking about checking out Austin and getting caught in the recent storm. I mean, so yeah, you've, been, no, we, you've been poking around. Yeah, no, like we, I mean, we, we, my wife and I, we went on a couple trips just to, you know, just to get out of LA on a little, you know, couple's vacation. We hadn't gone anywhere since our daughter was born. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty incredible when you talk to friends that are in those areas and you're just seeing like, there's, I mean, it makes sense, you know, especially for single family homes, people just aren't leaving, you know, yeah. they're not. They're not, uh, and but it makes total sense right now. I mean, we're experiencing the same thing in LA. Yeah, when you see the the rental properties, how much they've gone up in places like Miami or Austin, and how much they've come down in New York and San Francisco, you do start to wonder, okay, how many people actually are are going to reverse and go back when things sort of normalize and and just maybe lock in a lower rent if they can front run that trade. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm it's it's interesting though because you play. Like my wife and I are looking for a new place right now. And it's interesting the kind of games that you got to play right now, because even though you'll see something that's listed for, you know, a little, quite a bit more than what maybe you're comfortable paying, you're kind of like, well, if I go in saying I have a job and my wife has a job and like, you know, our single family, we have a daughter. I mean, maybe they'll be a little more flexible just because they know that we have secure jobs and, you know, we'll be able to afford it. You know, well, I, mean, I, I, I told you yeah. when I left, when I left LA, my landlord, when I, when I gave my notice, my one month notice in LA, my landlord basically said, how low does the rent have to be for you to stay? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I think there's so many people leaving certain cities that there is a certain name your price aspect to some of these other areas. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think most people of course know you as a, you know, a, a blockbuster real estate investor, of course. Uh, and, and I'm kidding, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, the, the, how I like to start all these podcasts, you know, not just talking about, you know, up and moving your, your whole life from uh, one city to another, but, uh, you know, getting back to our task at hand here, would love to kind of start with your, with your background. I know this was, a, this was a quick transition, but we're doing it anyway. Here we go. We're doing the quick transition. You know, I'd, Absolutely. Love, to know, I'd love to know where your passion for investing began. Yes. My passion for investing began with video games. That's that's a really weird start, but I'm I'm what I consider to be like middle of the road millennial. Like I I think millennial technically goes from like 82 to 95. I'm right smack dab in the middle of that. I'm not a I'm not an original Nintendo millennial. I'm more of a Super Nintendo millennial, if that makes any sense. I, I'm right there with you. You know, I was I was. Wait, like, how, how old are you, Corey? How old are you? 33. 33. Okay, I'm 32. So we're in yeah. the same. So you, you yeah. get you yeah. same boat. Um, yeah. Smack dab, middle of the road, graduated right into the recession, all that one wonderful fun stuff in two thousand nine. Um, but I got I actually originally when I was really young, just loved video games, and I don't know what it was that really got me started. But in middle school, I decided I wanted to learn how to program video games, and so I taught myself to program. And so that's been just a lifelong passion of mine. In high school, I was like, I'm absolutely going to program video games for a living. I, In my extra time, I programmed games for my Game Boy Advance. I wrote 3D game engines on the computer. Massive nerd, absolutely. <laughs> I go to college for computer science and I go, 
there's no way I'm doing this as a career. I loved it as a hobby, but when I got around the people that I thought I'd be spending the rest of my life with, I was like, I can't just sit behind a computer and not talk to anyone. Like this is a passion, but maybe not a career. And this was a time where where finance was really popular. Maybe it was the same for you in college. I had tons of friends that were going into iBanking and sales and trading for their sort of um, internships in the summer. Wait, well, hold on. Where did you go to college? Because I think it depends on the college that you go to. Because yeah, I went to Cornell. Not like that. Okay, I went so to Cornell, Cornell University. Yeah, so Cornell will, so, will probably have a little bit more than that. Then a lot, San Diego, yeah. A lot of pre-med, pre-law. <laughs> so a lot of friends going down to New York City and going to the major banks. And again, this is all pre-2008. And so I said, all right, this finance thing seems interesting. It might have just been sort of the zeitgeist of the time. Um, and I started through my father's financial advisor getting introduced to some potential internship opportunities around Boston. Uh, which is where I, I grew up. And sort of the first connection I made was I was working with a um, an asset manager who was building separately managed accounts for individuals, managed about $40 million out of the dividend growth universe, which at the time was about 500 stocks, um, the dividend achievers, all the companies that have raised their dividend 10, 20 years in a row. And he was doing everything completely discretionarily, had no sort of automated spreadsheet system and was doing it by himself. And so when I started working with him, the idea was basically to say, one, can I sort of mathematically show his intuition, right? The things that he thinks are important, can we show him statistically in doing all these back tests? And then two, can I help him sort of make his life easier, right? If he tried to do a deep dive into every stock in his universe throughout the year and spent a day on each stock, he wouldn't make it through the whole universe, right? So is there a way that I could help take his intuition, systematize it, create enough of a filter that maybe it got him to a hundred names that got most of the you know fluff out of the universe that he could then do a discretionary dive into? And so that was really my first marriage of thinking systematic, systematically, quantitatively, mathematically, and trying to marry it with fundamental investing principles. So you found that on your own. That wasn't like you, I mean, did you read a book about quantitative? I mean, did you read Jim O'Shaughnessy's book? I mean, like, no, or, or did you just think about that? Like, Hey, I want to automate and make what he's doing a little bit more efficient. So it was, I, it was more the latter. I mean, I, I didn't realize it until much later in my career that I was doing factor investing, that I was basically constructing these long only baskets or, or short baskets and comparing the spread of returns of these different quintiles and seeing if they were statistically relevant over the back test history for these different characteristics. That's just the test I did because it made sense to me statistically. I had never heard of factor investing before. So I guess my intuition got me to a nice place. Um, I mean, it really it really was sort of the basis of, of what I eventually go on and do with my career. So, but I did just do that as an internship. Um, didn't really know what I was going to do for a career. Uh, I sort of got this idea in my head, like the derivative space seems really interesting. Meanwhile, 2007 starting to unfold, 2008, I'm working on some quantitative strategies for myself, um, mostly based around ETF portfolios. So tactical ETF portfolios, I was building all these sort of quantitative signals and again, through my father's financial advisor, got introduced to a local asset manager who said, these signals are really interesting. Would you mind licensing the signals to me? And I said, sure, I'm a broke college student. I'm going to create this company called Newfound Research. I'll throw the IP in there. 
I'll set up a website. You can log in, download all the quantitative signals, use them however you want. Um, and, and that'll be great. And, new, and newfound research was born. And newfound research was born. It was named after a lake that my family used to go visit in New Hampshire. The name research because I was providing research and I assumed the whole thing would be gone within a year. <laughs> I end up going to grad school at, at Carnegie Mellon for their uh, master's in computational finance program, which is sort of this multidisciplinary degree targeted towards financial engineering. So typically, at, at least at that point, you would leave that program and go work on Wall Street in derivative sales and trading, risk management, something like that. Uh, I should point out that this was right after 2009. So all of those jobs were rapidly disappearing. And, um, but at the same time, this advisor, this, this asset manager that was licensing my research had grown a book of business from zero to over a billion dollars being run on the research. And I said, all right, I think there's a bigger appetite for this research. There's actually revenue in this business now. If there's any time for me to try to make an entrepreneurial strike, it's right now. I'm young. I can always go back and work on Wall Street. I've got, you know, why not go try it? You've already created something that sells. Right, why exactly. Not, why not keep going? And so that's exactly what I did. And then I ran into a wall for, you know, <laughs> three years straight trying to sell people research as a young 20-year-old with no gray hair. Um, my first client and I had signed an NDA, so I couldn't even reference that client's existence. Mm. And so after three or four years, I eventually said, you want to know what? I'm, I'm tired of going down this path. I'm just going to make this a traditional asset management business. I just want control from the bottom up of how these portfolios are built based on my research. And around the end of 2013, we launched some separately managed accounts and 2014, some mutual funds. And sort of the rest has just been the history of us trying to build a traditional asset management firm. So is it a lot easier than to, to raise capital for your own firm than it was to sell research? That is the main, I think that maybe might be the tagline for, for this show. You know, I think it depends on the type of research you're selling. Um, you see a lot of newsletters out there. And if I were to totally just take all my ethics and morals out of the equation, if you said, Corey, do you think you could very successfully market a newsletter service and make a lot of money? Absolutely. There, the amount of information asymmetry that exists between institutional oh, yeah. investors and retail investors and being able to tell a very sexy story about the returns you can generate. I, I think it's a marketing scam for the most part, but it can absolutely be done. Um, but that wasn't who I was targeting. I was targeting institutions. I was targeting advisors. And a lot of what I my proposition was, look, you run a strategic asset allocation. A lot of the quantitative signals I've built are around tactical asset allocation. Rather than just buying my research, why don't we collaborate? So I can actually take into account your strategic views and we'll marry them so that my tactical views aren't overwhelming your strategic views. So that was very, uh, a lot of people really liked that pitch. The problem is doing the actual legwork to, to do that collaboration, not only build the relationship, but from an actual research perspective would take months and months and months and months. And then once that sort of joint product went live, the reality is they didn't have enough skin in the game because I had spent all the time doing the work. And so if you hit any sort of hiccup in performance in the first six months, which look, you're an investor, you know, markets are volatile. It's things have, have tracking error that's both positive and negative. But if you came out of the gate without perfect performance, they would just ultimately end up abandoning the project. So you contrast that with, I mean, so was it very difficult? Yes. Maybe was it just a bad business model? 
maybe that might have just been on me, right? You contrast that with trying to raise money from a traditional asset management perspective. That's also very difficult. I mean, this is we're talking about a time in, in the industry where mutual funds and active management have been sort of dying, for lack of a better word. You saw a huge influx into low cost passive ETFs um, that honestly make it very difficult for a boutique manager to be successful because of that cost differential that to survive as a boutique manager, you're going to need at least $25 million in an ETF charging 80 basis points. And that's just to sort of keep the lights on. And you're trying to compete with BlackRock, who's bringing everything out at 10 basis points. Right. And so it becomes a very, very hard sell, particularly as passive continued to just beat active for the most part over the last several years. Um, and so I, I look, it's it's not an easy space out there. There's a reason asset managers aren't trading at very high multiples at the at the moment. Absolutely. So I mean, what would you say thinking back on getting to where you're at today? What was what were some of the you know getting the firm because from there we're, we'll talk about your philosophies and I, and, and we're going to talk about your white paper that you put out in September. But real quick, just to catch us up to where you are today, you know what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned where from just starting out to getting to that point? You know what were some of the things that you needed to adjust either both personally and also business model wise in order to continue to grow and 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 really get where you're at today. You know I think it's actually easiest for me to answer that question investing wise, just sort of the okay. lessons learned investing. I don't think I've truly changed my philosophy from the idea of marrying a systematic approach, quantitatively, mathematically driven. I think one of the things I've created over time, a greater appreciation of is the benefits of diversification, which yeah. sounds very vanilla, but I've come to view diversification much more holistically than just what you're investing in, right? So okay. you might think, what you're investing in, like, hey, is my portfolio diversified at 30 stocks, right? That's one way to think about diversification, but that's only one axis. I would argue that's what you're investing in. Another thing we might want to think about is how are you making those investment decisions? So if you bought all of those 30 stocks because they looked cheap based on their price to book ratio, just a very um, vanilla traditional value factor type screen, well, you are going to be, that portfolio is going to be very, very tied to how value does in aggregate uh, as a factor within the market. And it's been well publicized that, for example, value has been very out of favor for the last seven or eight years. So you're not really, you're diversifying what you invested in, but not how you invested. The other big one that people ignore that has been an obsession of mine for the last several years is when. When are you making investment decisions? And this sounds like an investment um, market timing phenomenon, but I would argue that as much as people try to poo-poo market timing, everyone's a market timer. If you make a decision to buy a stock today uh, versus buying it a month ago, that's a timing decision. If you decide to sell it today versus a month ago, that's a timing decision. And one of the things I found, particularly in researching systematic strategies, was that a lot of them that have come to market have a very scheduled rebalance frequency. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're buying a value ETF and it rebalances every December and every June. And all it does is it ranks the universe based on, say, price to earnings and picks the cheapest hundred stocks and, and buys them. Well, is there any magical reason why picking June and December mattered? What happened if you had done March and September instead? 
And what you find is that if you create sort of the alternative reality version of some of these indices, so same process, but just changing when they rebalance, you get massive changes in the performance. And that kind of makes sense because you're looking at a totally different opportunity set. And so the more concentrated that portfolio is, the more sensitive it is typically to that timing decision. Um, the more volatile the assets in the portfolio, the more sensitive it is to that timing decision. And so again, for me, a lot of my career, and this isn't necessarily quantitative, but it is very philosophical to what I do. A lot of my career has been shaped by this idea that diversification has to go beyond this concept of just what we're investing in, but how we're making those decisions and when we're making those decisions are hugely impactful in terms of actually managing risk within a portfolio. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on the when part, because I feel like that is just the number one thing that, you know, look, we can, we can debate a stock until we're blue in the face, right? And I think somebody actually tweeted this out where it was like the, the main difference is like we could probably actually agree on the thesis, but where we defer is probably the timing. And most of that timing is just hindsight too, right? You Absolutely. Know, so lo love to hear more on your thoughts on when. As I said, let's, this let's is- Let's go. We got, we got hours. We're fine. You're on the this is a, You're this chilling. Is a you're, weird, you're this is a weird obsession of mine, man. I, I got to tell you. So I've is, it, is it weird? I think this is, this is fascinating. Well, I think people who know Weirdly me are like, you're a little too obsessed with it. I've written two <laughs> papers on it. One of them was published. There's almost no academic literature on this. Um, now, a lot of what I've studied isn't just like when you make a decision about a certain stock, because a lot of what I'm focused on is more systematic portfolios that have a scheduled rebalance date, right? So a lot of these smart beta ETFs that are out there. There's a really famous example, though, which is um, the research affiliates um, fundamental index. And that might be familiar to your listeners. Research Affiliates is a very famous quant manager. And their fundamental index was, was popularized by their founder, Rob Arnott, who basically said, look, we're going to fundamentally weight companies rather than market cap weight them. And, and that's, gonna, that's a better way to actually harvest excess returns. Um, that's sort of our, our alpha sauce. And I believe back in sort of when they launched it, 2005, 2006, they were rebalancing once a year, which sounds a little weird, right? This is supposed to be an active strategy, but they basically would once a year look at the investment universe and then re reconstitute their portfolio based on this fundamental weighting scheme. And they had what can only be considered to be like the immaculate rebalance in 2009, that they perfectly rebalanced their portfolio at a time that ended up causing like an extra something like 10 percentage point return in their index versus if they had rebalanced at a different point that year. Because what they leaned into was very different fundamentally than what they could have leaned into if markets had continued to unfold the way they did. And so 2010, 2011, um, these authors from Robico, uh, David Blitz and, and Pim Fan Fleet ended up writing a paper basically saying, look, if, if you had taken their same methodology and just applied it at a different point in time, you got totally different results, which calls into question how you can even try to like estimate manager alpha, right? They smashed the market that year. But if instead of rebalancing in, say, June, they rebalanced in September, they actually would have underperformed the market. Same methodology, totally different rebalance frequency, a rebalance schedule. 
So what these authors basically said was, look, unless you think there's some reason you should pick a particular schedule, right? If you want to rebalance once a year, what you really should do is basically break your portfolio up into all these small pieces and let those pieces rebalance once a year and sort of rotate through them. So what do I mean by that? Well, maybe instead of rebalancing once a year in June, you take your portfolio and divide it into 12 pieces. And one 12th of your portfolio would rebalance every January. And then you wouldn't touch that piece until the next January. Then you'd go to the next piece and you'd do it every February. And you wouldn't touch it again until the next February. And so what you're doing is you're effectively rebalancing one 12th of your portfolio every month, refreshing it to whatever you should be holding. And this overlapping portfolio methodology effectively diversifies when you rebalance through time. And what you end up with is sort of the perfect average of how all those underlying portfolios would do. And so you're not really ever subject to positive or negative timing luck. And so that's been just fascinating. It's a huge area of focus for me. You find, I mean, what's really blown me away is the paper I, I recently published actually early last year was about rebalanced timing luck in factor portfolios. So looking at value, momentum, um, low vol quality, these different very popular factor uh, ETF type concepts. And I found that the return differential due to this rebalanced timing luck concept was tens of percentage points per year that you could basically say, hey, Bobby, you run a value portfolio. I run a value portfolio. You rebalance in June. I rebalance in December. In the last three years, I've absolutely beaten you by 500 basis points per year. I look like a hero. Turns out we were actually running an identical methodology, but I just kept getting lucky. And it really calls into question our ability to to measure how successful a manager really is because we're not measuring all the counterfactuals of when they could have rebalanced. I don't even know where to go from that because quite <laughs> frankly, I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those questions where like, and you just hit it on the head right there at the end where it's like, look, you take two of the same managers, they invest in the same companies. Let's say it's at two different times. And that one manager massively outperformed the other one just based on that timing, you know, right. or the other way that I, you know, especially we're th- talking about microcap investing, a lot of, a lot of people that listen to this right now, I'd say are long-term shareholders, six months and beyond, maybe six months is actually short, like let's say a year and beyond, right? And, uh, or that's even short, let's say two years and beyond, <laughs> but um you know, even when you think about that, when it's not just the when that they actually then, you know, got into those names, it's then when do you sell as well? So right. that you actually recognize those gains too. I mean, do you think about that in terms of your, 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 when, I mean, well, yeah, it's it, right. From the quant perspective, you can sort of think of it as every time you go to rebalance, you're rebuilding your whole portfolio right. from the right. ground up. And then whatever remains in there is sort of your consistent hold, whatever is exiting, you're selling, but I think sort of the easiest way to think about this, especially in the microcap space where you're talking about some pretty volatile stocks, you may say, this is a company I want to buy. You have to free up some capital. You free up some capital. You buy the company today. You think it's a great long-term hold. But what happens if all of a sudden the market gets volatile next month and now the company's on sale for 25% cheaper, right? You could have bought it 25% cheaper 
you know, versus like a friend of yours might ultimately do that just because that's when they could free up their capital to do it. Were they better at timing? You know, you both identified the same opportunity in theory if you think it's a long-term hold, but they might have just gotten lucky as to when they decided to place the trade on. Conversely, the stock could have gone 25% up and, and your friend could do poorly compared to you, even though you both think fundamentally the company is sort of the same company. Now, I'm sure listeners will say, well, price matters, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to buy when I think it's cheap. But again, especially for volatile stocks, a lot can happen in between when you decide to, to make that trade and when the trade actually goes on. And even just a few percentage points can be really meaningful when you talk about the individual securities. You know, we talk about luck a lot when it comes to investing. Would you say that, you know, if we really had to distill this idea of luck, when you're doing all this work and research, would you say luck really matters much more when it comes to timing versus actually just picking a quality name and doing the research and saying, all right, this has all the potential to be, you know, a, a, a great winner for me, you know, yeah. but where the luck is involved is that timing. Potential. Well, the timing is very important. One of the things you find when, when it comes to quantifying the impact of this timing luck is the turnover of the portfolio is a really, really impactful. So if you're talking about building a portfolio of long-term compounders or value names that has very low turnover, then the timing luck aspect actually really gets mitigated. Um, you know, it might be really low turnover because you're just not buying and selling that much, even though it's concentrated, or you might have a super diversified portfolio that, yeah, you're making some changes, but it's really around the fringes. So it's one of these where I think it really depends on the style of portfolio you're building. For high turnover traders, the timing really matters. But if you're building that long-term buy and hold portfolio, the timing aspect definitely goes down quite a bit. That's that's for damn sure. All right. So I want to, by the way, I just want to let the audience know if, if you were at all lost like I was at some points in some of the things that Corey said, you have a friend in me, you know, some of these concepts are, are even above my head, my pay grade. And uh, I'm just appreciative that Corey is, is taking the time to maybe simplify some of these things because he, this is what he does on a daily basis. If I, I can, if I can simplify this all down into <laughs> one concept, it's just yeah. sort of thinking about like, what are your unintended bets in the portfolio? By that, I mean, you know, an unintended bet is I bought and the market was up today, or I bought and the market was down today that like, you didn't intend the market to be up or down, but it affects the share price of what you bought at. Um, hey, did you mean to, when you were buying all these stocks in your portfolio, end up with a portfolio that has more of an energy tilt from a sector perspective than you thought it would, right? Those sort of unintended bets that can creep in, I think are things people don't think about. One that we see a lot is companies that are either very local versus doing a lot of international um, right. sales and revenue. What's your unintended currency exposure, right? What's your unintended regulatory exposure? That's all stuff we might not necessarily think about all the time. Those unintended bets are really what I try to think about when I think holistically around diversification. Very good. All right. So another quick transition. I wanted to uh, dive into the white paper that you published, and I think it was in September last year, um, uh, titled "Liquidity Cascades." You know, can you can you just provide what what your thesis was here with this white paper? Absolutely. So a lot of what I've been doing for the last several years has been tactical investing, primarily based on trend following signals. So very systematic and quantitative. It 
has struggled to work over the last several years and definitively struggled in March in particular, uh, uh, going from sort of all-time highs to one of the fastest sell-offs ever to one of the fastest rebounds ever is not the type of environment that trend following does well in because there aren't trends. It's just very sharp reversals. Post-March, I took a step back and I said, I really need to ask the question as to whether markets have fundamentally changed in a way that my style of investing no longer works because that was not the performance I really wanted. And so what I did is I really went out and I explored all these existing narratives that are out there. And you know, for some of these, you got to put your tinfoil hat on because they're very conspiracy-like. But the big narratives that sort of came out of this were central bank intervention is changing the world. Uh, the second was the role of passive investing. And I don't just mean active to passive, um, true market cap, you know, Vanguard style passive, but I also mean the rise of systematic ETFs that are very sort of passive in how they trade, as well as I'm going to just sort of generically say easier market access. Um, target date funds is a passive investment vehicle. Uh, we saw some, and we can talk about this a bit, like when commodities, when you can invest in them passively, how did how did the access to that market reflexively change the underlying market? And I think commodities are a great example because it definitively did. Um, and then third, sort of the, the major narrative out there was this asymmetric um, response in liquidity between those who are providing liquidity, high frequency traders and market makers, and those people that are really demanding liquidity in a market crisis, um, and these are people that we would call volatility contingent players. So these are going to be people like us who are trend followers, um, but also people trading options and, and hedging options, um, folks who like risk parity, which is going to be volatility targeting that's going to change its allocations in response to volatility. But anyone using leverage, for example, that has to post margin is going to be very sensitive to market volatility. And so, you know, that's a big when when all of a sudden markets go haywire and high frequency traders pull their liquidity and there's a huge demand for liquidity. Well, that mismatch can cause markets to get a little weird. So th these are the three big narratives out there. Um, what I found was each camp was really convinced that its answer was the answer as to why markets were fundamentally different. There's a South Park episode in there, I, I think. Yeah, I definitely. <laughs> As I sort of walked away and to spoil the conclusion for the listeners so they don't have to read the piece, my, my ultimate take was, the, I don't think these are independent pieces. I think that they are all related in a very pro-cyclical way that, for example, as central banks intervene further and further and, and depress discount rates, investors are forced up the risk curve to buy riskier assets. Um, we see that as they buy riskier assets, they tend to move into lower cost solutions. They also tend to uh, buy less liquid assets. So you see pensions and endowments buying uh, more private equity, private debt, uh, those sort of structures, which means that when there is some sort of exogenous shock to the market, like the COVID crisis, and they need liquidity, it puts more pressure on the liquid part of their portfolio. And then in moving up the risk curve, a lot of people are adopting volatility contingent strategies to try to manage risk. They're saying, hey, if I can't manage it by holding more bonds, I need some sort of dynamic trading strategy to get me in and out. And with everyone piling into those strategies, it puts more stress on markets during, uh, during sort of these shocked periods. 
And so then when the market starts to unwind, you need the central bank to step back in to sort of fix the problem and the whole loop begins anew. And so it's it's a system that's set up in a way right now where you have these very sort of pro-cyclical forces pushing people into more crowded and fragile positions. And by the way, I think this works both ways. I think it can cause exogenous shocks and sell-offs like we saw in March. But I think that crowded positioning, the, the regrossing of portfolios as people flood out of the market and then flood back into the market can drive markets to abnormally weird highs. And I think that's partially what we saw in the second half of 2020 and, and some of this year already. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it, I, I'm sure you've been seeing some of these similar trends, not only continuing, but probably might be continuing now for the net, for the rest. Of, I mean, I'm not saying you're going to be an Oracle or anything, but like, I'm sure you're seeing some of these trends now definitely going to be continuing into this year as well. Yeah, it's hard. So you sort of have to step back and say, okay, what causes this to all come apart, right? And either need people right. to migrate out of these volatility contingent strategies, you need the Fed to step away. I mean, people are talking about you know interest rates going up as much as they have in the last six months. At the end of the day, you know, 1.2, 1.3% rates on the 10-year still isn't all that appetizing if you're an endowment trying to hit a 7.5% return target because you've got these far-dated liabilities, right? Or you're a pension. So I don't see people moving out of that stuff until the market fundamentally changes um, either on, on the interest rate perspective or people get blown up enough in these volatility contingent strategies that they just move on from them. Um, but I'm not seeing that in the short term. I do think what's really interesting is we are still, in my opinion, seeing a market driven by flows and not fundamentals. So Tracy Alloway from, from the Odd Lots podcast has a great turn of phrase, which is flows over pros. And <laughs> I mean, look, we, we saw it, I think, in March, but you can look at something like the GameStop phenomenon as a little microcosm of that, of, you know, we had these retail investors who worked together to buy call options. And, and by the way, I think it invited a lot of institutional buying as well to create what's called a gamma squeeze in a fairly illiquid stock that ultimately then potentially led to a short covering squeeze and drove a stock up thousands and thousands of percent, right? That is really nothing to do with fundamentals. It's pure market flow. And I think we're seeing that behavior in a lot of other stocks, these sort of meme stocks that are getting pumped with call options. And I think we are, that's all sort of a microcosm and a little bit extreme, but it is, I think, what's happening with the market at large, that we have this sort of tail wagging dog phenomenon that the market's being driven by supply and demand effects, not really being driven by or, or tethered to any sort of notion of fundamental value right now. Gotcha. It's, by the way, this phenomenon's still going on. We're recording this on February 25th. It, it, this thing, it, they're saying, like, what is this, Groundhog Day? I mean, it's, Yeah, I mean, what did GameStop popped up 100% yesterday after everyone sort of left it for dead? And I think this mark, morning pre-market, it was up another 50%. So, yeah. I mean, this stuff is still happening left and right. And, and for full disclosure, are you a shareholder in uh, GameStop? I am not. I am not a shareholder in GameStop. Very good. And so going back to the white paper, you know, you also at the end, you you offer that there's ways in which that a port, that investors can build a portfolio that exploits some of these dynamics. So can you can you explain how investors can do that right now? Yeah, I think the ultimate thesis here, and I have to be very careful because whether you care about these dynamics, I think is very dependent on 
sort of what type of portfolio you're building. If you're building a 50-year portfolio, you might just say, I'm going to ignore this short-term noise, or I'm going to use it opportunistically, right? I think the market's going to keep going, moving to extremes further faster. And so when the market crashes, I'm going to use that opportunity to buy some, some companies that are on discount. Um, so you might just ignore it. If you believe that the Fed provides the ultimate Fed stop, right, that markets are never going to crash again, then I think the answer is, hey, just go levered long and maybe buy some way deep out of the money puts on the US dollar or something like that, just to protect yourself from a currency crisis, crisis of the Fed sort of inflating us away. But if that's your thesis, fine. The way I walked away from it was saying, look, I don't, I don't want to make a call and have super high confidence that the Fed put is real or that any of these effects are going to be persistent. What I do know is that the qualitative and quantitative evidence suggests that markets are moving further faster, that the extremes are becoming more extreme and we're seeing them with greater frequency. And if you're a tactical manager, it basically means you have to play whack-a-mole at a much greater frequency. And that's really hard to do. So the other option, in my opinion, is to think about, are there ways in which you can embed some structural diversification that is convex? Now, what does that mean to be convex, right? Well, it means that um, when you're convex to the upside, you're going to make more faster as markets go up, and then you've got sort of a fixed loss. So like a call option where you're paying a premium, and the most you can lose is that premium is going to be a convex instrument. Because if you're right and the market goes up, you're going to make much more than you spent. Uh, sort of linear payoff, right, would be, hey, the, the stock goes up a dollar, you make a dollar. Stock goes down a dollar, you lose a dollar. A convex payoff, maybe stock goes down a dollar, you lose 50 cents. Stock goes up a dollar, you gain $2, right? If we think markets are going to the right, you know, up to the right tail faster and down to the left tail faster, then what we might want to do is think about embedding some structural diversification. So very simple way that we explored in the portfolio is saying, why don't we buy some deep out of the money call options on the market and some deep out of the money put options on the market? Now, yes, the put options are probably going to lose us money. It's like buying insurance that you're just going to spend and spend and spend on. Um, but in those years, the market's really running away to the upside. Those call options provide us a little bit of asymmetric leverage. That as the market's running, we're getting all the benefit. And that can more than uh, outweigh the downside of buying those puts. And similarly, when the market crashes, yeah, we're going to lose all the money we spent on the call options, those sort of lottery ticket-like structures. But that should be more than offset by the protection we get from the puts. And so, again, instead of trying to just be faster and time the market more quickly um, and play this game of whack-a-mole, it's a question of, again, rethinking what type of diversification we can build into our portfolio. Very good. Very good. All right. So I want to do another quick transition. Um, you're also the host of a great podcast called Flirting with Models. Phenomenal name. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> just, uh, oh, this uh, uh, so, uh, so I have to ask, how, how did this idea for the podcast come about? And then what would you say are some of the best nuggets that you, you've, that have stuck with you since interviewing some of these incredible people that you've had on? I was very reluctant to do a podcast. Um, I guess I started a little over three years ago. I know myself personally, and I know that if I was going to host a podcast, I was going to put way too much effort into it in terms of just feeling like I was prepared. I think that ended up being true for yeah, sure. The, the artwork it, it itself is incredible. I, I, Thank I was you. Just like, 
I was looking at it yesterday, just like, oh, this season, but this, Picasso, this yeah, is so cool. Yeah, different artwork every season. And yeah, so it's, it's, it is a lot of work. And so that's why I do it seasonally. I try to record all these and then launch them around summer every year. You know, for me, it really came down to when you run an asset management firm, there's the actual portfolio management side of it, which is incredibly important, but there is also the business side of it. And so the marketing of your services is candidly just very important in terms of um, trying to make people aware of who you are. A podcast is a great way to do that. Um, I've been writing a lot of weekly research notes and, and people can find that on our website if they Google us. And the reality is there's some people who love to read and there's some people who love to listen. And hearing your voice is a very different way of getting to know someone than reading their research. And so just through talking to a lot of friends who had podcasts, they said, you know, it is a really just different channel where you get a different audience. So that I said, you know, from a marketing perspective, I think I'm going to explore this. What I ultimately found is that my selfish benefits from the podcast far out outweigh that. And what I mean by that is not only have I learned a tremendous amount from my guests, um, both sort of talking to them in the podcast as well as talking to them offline, but it's built my network and connections in a way that I just never would have guessed because you talk to one guest and they say, oh, you should think about interviewing this other person and they make an introduction and you just meet all sorts of people that you may not have been able to come across otherwise. So it's it's been really selfishly quite phenomenal from that perspective. I think some of the most intriguing learnings for me um, come from thinking about parallel spaces I'm not necessarily investing in or not investing in yet. Uh, and and I, I've always thought, you know, hey, look, I invest a certain way, um, but I give myself the lateral freedom to explore other areas because sometimes when you get your blinders on around how you should invest, it can make you uh, very sort of blind to other opportunities or other or, or modalities of thinking, right? You sort of need that, um, you know, what's Charlie Munger call it? Your, your different sort of mental models, I guess. And if you only think about investing in one way, you can sort of become too narrow focused on a certain set of mental models. One example um, from last season is I had an interview with a portfolio manager named Jeffrey Baird, who manages a, a set of um, option-based strategies within the world of commodity futures. Not something I've ever touched in my life, right? Derivatives on derivatives. And the conversation was so fascinating around how he thought about managing risk and how he thought about something I had never even considered was, hey, look, when you buy a call option and you're super out of the money and the market moves, nothing really happens. But if you get the call right and the market starts to move towards your strike price, your call option goes from very, very convex, right? You, you have a little downside with a ton of upside to basically, once you're in the money, it just looks like you're along the underlying. So now you've got this very linear relationship. And so you're like, well, great. I got the answer right. I got my call right. I got it directionally right. Or maybe your call on volatility was right. But now all of a sudden your risk has gone way up when you're right. And he was talking about how the hardest part about managing a convex portfolio is that aspect of knowing when to monetize being right, because when when you're right, you create more risk in your portfolio. That is not something I had ever considered in my life. And you can That's sort of think about fascinating. it. Fascinating. Right. I mean, I think the very That's natural, uh, easy way to understand this from the stock world is like, 
you buy five stocks and you were really right on one of them. And now it becomes 90% of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Well, you were really right, but now it represents an outsized risk. Right. It Now take that and, and take it to the nth degree because you have the convexity built in with these options. Mm-hmm. And so it was just one of these, and again, thinking not a topic I probably would have explored that much, but became super relevant to me this year when we started introducing options in our own strategies. I've had that conversation and I was able to lean into his wisdom and his experience to make sure that we were aware of those risks when we were starting to build these strategies. How do you how did how did you start thinking about it even further once he kind of once he gave you that little nugget? Because yeah. for me, I, like, how, how what what do you do from there? Like, how how did you then change up your own strategy to incorporate some of that idea? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer you, that two ways. I'll, I'll answer it two ways. I will say the cheat code of my podcast, and this is I think is one of the things <laughs> that not a lot of people do. I have several potentially several pre-calls with every guest. So I will have a call with a guest and do a full hour-long get-to-know-you call that I take four or five pages of notes on before I have my interview with them. And by the way, I use that that pre-call to structure out my questions that I plan on using the backbone, and I send them the questions. Not appropriate for every podcast, but at least for me, where we might get into a lot of technical detail, I do want to make sure my guest feels very comfortable with where we're going. And that I'm there, I'm not asking them to reveal too much secret sauce that they'd be uncomfortable with in a podcast. So that gives me a lot of opportunity to like think about some of this stuff. In terms of taking his thoughts and, and one step further, it also gives me the opportunity to say, like, okay, I had that initial conversation. I need to chew on this. And I can send him further questions back and forth to be like, I'm not sure if I 100% really understand this, right? Can you walk me through another example? And hey, I'm really slow and, and, and I'm really thick. Can you give me another example? You know, <laughs> And so it just gives you the opportunity for that ongoing dialogue. And I think that's one of the, again, selfishly, one of the best things about podcasting for me has been building that network. When you run a small asset management firm, you only have so many resources to hire people your podcast, and I would even argue things like Twitter are a way to expand your network to people that are willing to have a conversation. And you can you know, create that sort of intellectual web of people you can tap into anytime you start running into a problem. So as soon as we started thinking about sort of early last year, incorporating options into our portfolios as a hedge for these left and right tails, I had at least six people on speed dial that I started calling up and said, okay, educate me. What do I not know that I don't know? Because this this is what I want to do. This is what I want to achieve. And this is how I'm thinking about achieving it. What have I not thought about because I haven't traded this for 10 years? And it doesn't mean I can absorb 100% of their wisdom. But if you have that network and you can sort of suck it up like a sponge and you've got five or six people to do it, all of a sudden, you know, you can really accelerate your learning that way. Oh, I could completely relate to that. Definitely not at that same intellectual level because I... You're swimming in waters that I could only dream of potentially uh, getting my brain around. But I totally get what you're saying and expanding the network. Now you have, you know, six to eight, ten people that you can call to ask, you know, about this, that, the other thing when it comes but to But I investing. have to imagine you've and, got the same thing on on the fundamental micro cap investing side. Oh, for you're sure. looking at a company that maybe is in a space you're not super familiar with and you don't know the risks of that sector. I, I know you've got people on speed dial that you can oh, call that have invested in that sector. A hundred percent. And you know, it's the funniest thing is when you're saying you're, how you prepare for the podcast. I, I got to say, I, 
I, I, I, I should be doing that crazy kind of research beforehand. I honestly, I go into each of these where like, you know, we just met today, <laughs> just having that, you know, that it's just a different, it's a different approach. Like it's mine right, course, is yeah. not organic, not. And, and so some people like that because again, I think mine is supposed to be very information dense, but you're not getting a lot of fun chat. Right, there's no banter going back and forth in my podcast. It's like Wait, it's educational. Hold on, you and Jeffrey Baird didn't talk about how you're considering moving to the Cayman Islands. I mean, come I on. I know exactly. That, exactly. That, that didn't come up. Come on. So, <laughs> so it's just different styles. It's not right or yeah, wrong. No, and again, no. as I said, I'm a bit of a control freak about that stuff. So <laughs> I don't want to go into a podcast and get myself into a corner where I go, "Wow, I am so out of my depths as a host. I don't even know how to navigate my way out of these waters." I that I feel like that's where I feel most comfortable where I go in yeah. where I just like yeah I'm I have no idea what they're saying right now but th that's why I, but that about that was why I started this is because you know not only to educate the next generation of us how to invest and understand some of these different strategies but even for me you know I talk about this I, I think I had a conversation with Bill Bill Brewster last week about it where it's just like you know we he he has a, he has a similar reason why he's doing his podcast it's just like yeah. I wanted to do this just to just to take people on my journey of being a complete dunce to being like maybe like somewhat of not a well like still like dunce level but like not as duncey you know so that well the only I'll that's tell you the only that. reason I at this point care about having <laughs> listeners to my podcast and I, and I don't want to insult my listeners if anyone are listening to this but the only reason <laughs> I care about having listeners is because it means I keep getting great guests. At this point, it is so selfish of me running this podcast because I just get this, again, this great network and all these people I get to talk to. And it's so beneficial to me that like, if I knew nobody was listening, I would still do it. Right. I just think, you know, it's, it's such a great excuse to have really deep, thoughtful conversations with people that you might not otherwise be able to, to access. Agreed. All right, dude. So now I'm going to get to my favorite question that I ask everybody on the show. And you, you talked about this a little bit when you talked about some of your the lessons learned when you know you you were kind of getting your start and and founding newfound research and taking it to where it's at today. But I'd love to hear an anecdote or or, or even a war story uh, of uh, of you know uh, just an investing experience that really impacted you the most in your career. An investing experience that well. So very early on, so I, I've told this, well, this is like my biggest failure. I think every investor, when they get started, thinks they're the next Warren Buffett. I don't know anyone that really didn't come into this thinking that they want to buy deeply undervalued companies and, and that they're going to, they can do the analysis. I don't remember when it was. It must have been 2007, around that period. I had just started investing and I came across this company trading on pink sheets. And it was called, I might mess this name up, but I think it was called Deep Down. Don't hold the stock anymore. This is not a position I own. It's called Deep Down. And they did like, they provided, um, they provided all sorts of mechanical parts for underwater exploration. And the whole narrative was tied into the amount of um, oil drilling that was going to be occurring, you know, uh, under underwater at that point, and they were providing a huge amount, or in theory, providing a huge amount of of uh, of, of the services that you know, huge growing marketplace. And I said, "Wow, this is an up and coming player. No one's really noticed it. Their balance sheet looks good." I think I ended up buying at thirty cents, and it went to a dollar, which made me feel like an absolute genius. So I put more money in, 
And then it went back down to 30 cents. And because I had put more money in a dollar, I was now down more than my original, you know, and it was just one of those that I went, I just completely used price to confirm my own bias without doing further research into recognizing this is a completely illiquid pink sheet company that gets pumped and dumped left and right, you know? And so I have no idea where the company is today, but I said, you know, there are so many forces outside my control. By the way, I don't think they ever grew to become the the big force in nature. I I thought they could. Um, But I ultimately said, it's not my style. I, I learned very quickly. I don't like calling management. That's not something I want to do. Um, I really don't like digging through balance sheets. I don't know if I'm particularly all that good at spotting industry trends. Why did I think at 19 or 20, I had some sort of insight into what was going to be happening in the energy field? Now, that's not to dismiss 19 and 20-year-olds who do have that skill. I'm just saying, I don't think I do. And so it was one of these cases where I went, okay, I lost a bunch of money on that. I don't want to make that mistake again. I need to find an investment style that aligns with my personality. And so again, that's where for me being very systematic and quantitatively driven uh, really just aligns with who I am as an investor. I, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to invest other than saying, I don't, if, if your investment style doesn't align with the way you think, it's probably the wrong way to invest for you. I, I, no, I, I can. Com- I completely agree with everything you just said. Like you should be investing to how your what fits your personality best because that's how you're going to feel most comfortable, even when you lose. Because absolutely, like, all, right, all right, you know. But I feel right. very fortunate but, to have had that experience early on. Because, yeah. like in the grand scheme of things, how much money did I lose? It was a lot of money for a broke college student. It was not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, right? So, so in that sense, I'm. I'm happy that I'm I'm not making that same mistake today, right? And plowing a bunch of money into a, a company I don't really know anything about. Um, so, you know, I think those formative experiences, I'm I'm almost happy I lost the money because I think about the counterfactual of what would have happened if I had made a lot of money. What path would that have, you know, sort of like losing your confidence out of the gate can oh, you humble started- you. You would have started a newsletter. You would be exactly. like, you would be doing all the things that you would have been like, no, no, I don't, I'm not selling research anymore. I want to do a newsletter, do this. Exactly. <laughs> so I think being humbled out Follow of the gate trades. is probably a good thing because I, I do look at like, for example, the modern retail investor who started after March and started buying call options and tech stocks and are just minting a fortune, or at least the perception is they're minting a fortune right now. And you go... This this lesson that they learn about managing risk is only going to become more damaging the longer this cycle continues, right? And so you can really learn the wrong lessons in the market because you're being rewarded for the wrong reasons sometimes, um, right? The market can be very random. And so it's not necessarily that these people have insight in buying call options on tech stocks that keep rallying. But if they keep making money, they're going to start being more confident that they do have insight. And so for me, I think being humbled out of the gate is probably one of the best lessons I ever could have had. Absolutely. All right. So uh, one quick follow up to that, you know, because, you know, micro, a lot of a lot of my, my audience, they love talking to management, you know, because you have access, you know, it's micro caps, whatever. Um, what was it about calling management that you're like, I do not like doing this? Was it just like, you, it was so easily, I mean, we we know that some management teams, you know, they're great salespeople, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. What, was, I, was think I'm, I think just when I was younger, I was very shy. The idea of 
picking up the phone and calling the CEO of a company or, or you know, whoever was going to pick up and trying to warm my way to talk into management as a 19 year old who was maybe throwing a couple hundred bucks at a penny stock. That just it was like, that was a step too far for me. I just didn't feel like I was I, within my rights to do it. Was I within my rights? Absolutely. I'm a shareholder. I know that now. <laughs> but I think the confidence to do it back then was was much lower. So, and again, I just even today, I'm not sure I know all the right questions to ask. Going back to that wisdom, if I were to start investing in that style, I'd call you and say, "Okay, you've asked a million questions to management. What are the most useful questions you can ask? What questions do I think are good questions, but really are not? What are the in between the line tells that I should really be listening for when I talk to management?" Things that you've picked up, right, from years of doing this and all that wisdom, that if I were to start doing this, I would need to accelerate my learning really quickly. Or otherwise, again, I'm just I'm just shooting in the dark, thinking I'm doing something that really might not have any value add. Gotcha. All right. Well, another thing I have to ask you before I let you go, because we're, we're at about our time. What was the video games that you developed when you were a kid? I want to hear about the game oh. that you put together. Like that, that's not, yeah. I was going to ask you at the beginning, but we started going on our investing track. I'm like, all right, I don't want to diverge just yet. Like, let's. So I'll, yeah. I'll save that one for the end. So I so back in the day, so you probably you probably had a Game Boy, one of the original yeah. big oh, brick Game Boys. And Pokemon, I think Pokemon, Donkey yeah. Kong. Works, yeah. And then they came out with this thing called the Game Boy Advance, which is probably yeah. one of the last consoles I ever bought. Um and and it was back in the day you, you could put cartridges in there still. So what was really cool is there was this whole homebrew community, and you could buy these cartridges. Um, from I think it was, they were coming out of China at the time that you could write code, flash your code to the cartridge, and then you could put your cartridge in the Game Boy, and it would it would basically so be like cool. your game was on the cartridge. So again, these weren't like super sophisticated games, but like the very simple ones I I wrote were like, hey, okay, you're a spaceship traveling from left to right, and there are aliens coming at you, and you got to shoot them and get them out of the way. Yeah, like I mean, a, like old, a knockoff, like Space Invader or something. Exactly, old Atari yeah. style games. I mean, I didn't have um, all the resources and time to build very complex games, but to me, you know, being you know 13, 14, 15, it was just so cool to see something that I programmed on my computer, tested on my computer flashed to this ROM cartridge, stuck in my Game Boy and could walk away and, and play this game I made on my Game Boy. That is so sick. Oh my God. That that's off. I remember I stopped with the there was the the see-through Game Boy. Remember those? Yes. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. My brother that, had one of those. Yeah, that was that was it was like purple, right? Yep, like that yep. that was that was the last one. That was the last console I had. But uh, we had like the big box one, and then and then that one. So and, how wild is it, by the way, right now? So I mean, you and I are same generation of all this stuff. I don't know if you did any of the collectibles as a kid of like Magic the Gathering cards or Pokemon cards or anything like that. Oh, I got I got Pokemon cards and then every sport card. So basketball, baseball. So football. one Christmas, my brother, who's younger than me, was super into Pokemon, was collecting Pokemon cards. I wasn't collecting Pokemon cards at the time, but he was. And I had collected this huge Magic the Gathering set that I no longer played. And I had a friend who had one of those like foil Charizard cards. I am, I'm going to apologize to any of the guests that are listening to this that have no idea what we're talking about. And one of those foil Charizard cards. So I traded him every single, and at the time, I think it was $125. Mm-hmm. I traded him every single Magic the Gathering card I had for that foil Charizard That's card. That's a ring. nice trade. And I gave it to my brother for Christmas. That was, that was my Christmas present to my brother. 
That card now is worth like $125,000. I 100% guarantee my brother doesn't have it. He definitely threw it in the trash decades ago, right? But it's so funny watching some of these themes that are going on in the market right now. You're like, I had, ho- and of course, like, you know, you can sort of say, oh, where are my, where are my Pokemon cards now? But it's <laughs> wild to be like, where did this craze reemerge from that Pokemon cards all of a sudden are worth this much money? Yeah. Pokemon cards, like sports cards. I mean, I remember you, I used to own the, you know, I'd always buy the new Beckett books because that's where you used yeah. to, it wasn't online that those days, like you would have to go through the Beckett books and see how much your cards were worth. And um, yeah, now to see everything online and it's like it's cyclical, right? I mean, it, it's like you were saying earlier. It's just this reverting to more riskier, volatile assets now yeah. uh, as part of your liquidity cascades narrative. I mean, it's it, it's part and parcel, right? right. I mean, uh, it, it's just a matter of trying to, especially on the card side, because it, there are it it is very cyclical from what I remember. Is like you just want to take advantage of it now because it's 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 going to lose interest very very quickly. And right. then you're gonna have to wait a couple of years until that next like boom happens again, you know. So how figure long out what cards it'll be next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, last question before I let you go. I promise. I, I know you got to get to the beach. I can hear the birds <laughs> chirping. So my last question is, you know, what advice do you have for new investors that are looking at the markets currently? That are looking for them at the markets currently? Yes. Yeah. Be careful. <laughs> That's the number one piece of advice. <laughs> look, I look. Um, I, I do truly believe that everyone should be investing and everyone should be investing for the long run. That that when you think of you know your ability to generate wealth, you have your human capital and your investment capital. And I think it's very important that that you balance those and you make as much as you can and you save as much as you can. And then you put that capital to work. And I sort of think of it as, hey, if I can buy the S&P 500, I am getting to create a return on sort of the growth and innovation of of the 500 largest companies out there that are pretty stable. But as you learn more, you you figure out what your investment style is. And I would say, you know, start investing in a way that makes sense for you to be able to stick with it in the long term. An investment plan only makes sense if you can stick with it. And so if investing in large cap stocks isn't going to make you save and keep reinvesting, it's micro cap stocks. Then I say lean into what you're doing. Just be careful. Think holistically about diversification and uh, and manage your risk. Very good. All right, Corey, where can my audience go and find more information on newfound research and also listen to Flirting with Models? Sure. So first, Bobby, let me just say, absolute pleasure being here. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Um, if people want to learn more about us, they can go to our website, thinknewfound.com. You can find me all too often on Twitter, at uh, C. Hofstein, and then our our podcast, Flirting with Models, is pretty much on every major podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Android. You'll find it. Corey, the pleasure was all mine, man. This was so much fun. And uh, again, thank you. S- stay safe. I mean, you're in probably the safest island out there right now, right? Uh, but <laughs> did you stay safe. Good luck. And uh, I really look forward to our next chat. Thank you. Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. 
This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.